Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania-based Brittany Martin, who is currently the host of the 5x5 Ruby on Rails podcast and is a backend engineering lead at Textus. Brittany Martin, welcome to Maintainable. It's great to be here. So given your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of well-maintained software code? Yeah, so that's a great question. For me, it's being able to very easily see what the business value of that code is related to in the business. To actually know that that code is being used, is constantly being looked at, refactored, well-tested, and making sure that the overall ecosystem is very robust and stable. When you talk about you know, understanding the business value in terms of like how much it costs to build, or are you talking about how it's benefiting the business for like their objectives or maybe somewhere in the between that. So I think there are a lot of developers out there that are completely separated from what's actually bringing value to the customers. To them, they sit down and they write code, but they don't know whether their code's being utilized by customers, whether or not the support team is dependent upon it. And so a big thing for me is making sure that the developers all understand the analytics that are coming into the company and knowing that once they ship a feature, they've made a big impact to their customers. I've had some situations in the past where I've spent a long time writing on a big block of code, and I know that I'm accruing technical debt as I'm doing it, but I believe deep in my heart, and I've been told by the stakeholders, that that code is going to be used by customers and well-loved. Little did I know, as I found out toward down the line, is that that code wasn't being used at all. And so while it's really, it feels great to open a pull request and to delete a bunch of code, it feels awful to delete code that you've put a lot of hard work into and that you've been maintaining for all the versions and dependencies that you've been going through. Right. And so isn't that the response? Is it the the responsibility of the developers to understand all the why? Or is it kind of, I think in a lot of environments, developers are kind of, you mentioned how they're separated quite a bit. How much information do they need to know? Or is this that their stakeholders are telling them that they need to do this? Is that somehow the responsibility of a developer to say, but why are we doing this a little bit more or to to question that more? I think you nailed it. There's a push and pull. So I think it's both the product manager and the engineering leads to supply that information to the developer, whether or not it's in the epic or when the, the epic is being kicked off, when stories are being reviewed, making sure testing scenarios are actually being written in the way that a customer would actually use the software. But also developers need to come into the process with a little bit of curiosity. If a developer doesn't care about the business whatsoever, I honestly don't think that it's a good fit. For me, when I've been selecting roles in throughout my career, I've always made sure that I at least had some interest in the business and that when there were company-wide announcements and company meetings, you know, celebrations over meeting OKRs, that I felt included in that because there can be a huge tendency for the engineering team to be very siloed. And while you don't want to have a lot of context switching, it's still very important that the engineers feel invested in the business because in the end, they won't leave. And when you have engineers working on the same code base for years, you tend to end up having more more maintainable software. Do you think the developers, when you're kind of in that, say, an environment where there's, they're a lot more, let's say, engaged in the 
the understanding what the you know the, the organization's goals are, what they're trying to deliver for their customers or for their use, users. Uh, an aspect of that is maybe thinking, well, you're asking for this, but that's going to be really expensive to build and maintain. Might there be a different way to, to to approach this that might be allow us to say experiment sooner or test this idea a little bit before we really make a larger investment? Absolutely. I feel that when an engineer understands the overall goal of the project, I absolutely love those conversations where you bring an idea to an engineer and it might be this massive thing that you think it's going to be very expensive to build. And that engineer kind of sits there and thinks about it and says, hey, if I were to ship this version one just to prove that this might solve what the customer wants, can we try that? I absolutely love phasing things, and I love it when developers get their input in to be able to break up a project so that way we can ship something faster. I think that's that's some that's some good advice there, and I think that's important. Let's say you're a junior developer in in a product environment where that it is that kind of that space where they're kind of in that, I, I mean, I've known junior developers that are trying to just feel like they're competent enough to understand how to like produce good quality code, let alone take on those other steps of being like, I'm also going to question the business value of what I'm writing. Do you have advice for those types of people that are kind of navigating that aspect of they're in that phase of their career? Or is that leaning a lot on, you know, the higher up developers that are in the, in your team? That's such a well-timed question because I just saw a tweet today from a CEO and they said that they had a big company meeting and provided a very controversial decision and that a junior developer came up to them afterwards and provided negative feedback. And so most people would have taken that really hard, but that CEO was celebrating the fact that the junior developer you know, felt comfortable enough to do that. And so to answer your question, I think that it's about the environment that you provide and what that junior developer was probably doing before they became a developer. As a former boot camp instructor, I have seen such a wide variety of students, you know, who had these really interesting and sometimes gritty careers before they became developers and how that almost lends itself to how they'll act as a junior developer. What I like to do when you have a massive project and you want to get a junior developer involved is that you have a senior or an architect really lead it, but then give responsibility to the junior developer to question everything, you know, almost like a referee throughout the entire process, but have that junior developer find those edge cases in your overall thinking and really celebrate it when they find it. Because in theory, when you ship that code and your senior developer in, you know, really feels that they have left the project, it's, it often falls on your junior developers to have to fix edge cases as bugs, which is not the, the it doesn't feel great. And so when a junior developer can locate an edge case on something, but even if it's just a really small niche within that project, I think it's it's a great thing to celebrate them because it just it just overall lends you to uh, shipping better software. That's great. Do you use the metaphor technical debt at all? I do. I do. I think that technical debt is just a part of software development, and it's up to you to regularly be considering that technical debt. So I recently changed jobs, and I'm now an engineering lead. And one of the things that was given to me as an agenda item, like an action item to bring to the team is what kind of technical debt is slowing down the development team and to really figure out to separate it from natural occurring technical debt and technical debt that is actually stopping our team from shipping features. 
Has has your teams consistently referred to it in the same sort of thing? Does it mean the same in each team, or is it like how what do you, how do you currently define what technical debt is? Yeah, so it's it's tricky for me being new in a company, finding out what the difference is between managing dependencies, what a bug is, what a chore is, and then what is just recurring technical debt. And so to be honest, Robbie, I'm at the point at this job where I'm still figuring out what that technical debt is. Now, my last job, I was there for five years and I, I can read off the technical debt pretty easily. But um, as someone who's new in a code base, they're, you know, just in the time that I've been there, it's it's hard to find the technical debt just right off the bat. And it's almost something where you're relying on the developers that have been there for a while. You might be pairing with them and they point to a spot of code and they're like, oh, that was a project that, you know, just didn't really go anywhere. But, you know, we continue to maintain these classes. And it's like, well, that that's technical debt. What do you believe developers often get wrong when they're discussing technical debt with, say, stakeholders? Oh, good question. I think a lot of developers try to hide technical debt from stakeholders. They want stakeholders to believe that the code is pristine, but in times where they need to have an excuse for why something didn't ship or whether or not a bug you know, got uh, pushed out to production, it becomes a really handy thing to point to that technical debt and be like, well... And then they find a developer who no longer works there and they're like, well, this person contributed a lot of technical debt. And so, you know, it can be technical debt can definitely lead to, you know, a blame culture. But in healthy engineering organizations, they accept that there's technical debt and they reserve a portion of their engineering time to working on that technical debt. You mentioned the idea of just that blame culture. You know, I think it's been my experience over the years where, work with a lot of different teams and they, you know, you hear people talk about technical debt as being like, well, that was someone else's code that someone wrote, you know, 10 years ago that I wouldn't have done it that way. And that might be contentious of whether or not that's technical debt or just a different opinion on how to approach it, uh, maybe in some degrees versus let's say when you're making, I think some people talk about, well, code that's not easy to test or make changes to, or where you're making say a conscious decision to take a shortcut, but later on you're going to have to come back and like actually build out the road that you need there and not just keep walking, you know. I think that there is a, it's an interesting thing that like how different teams are kind of referring to it differently. And you, you know, you pull that out, that example where people can bring it out in a conversation to, as a defensive approach or a, uh, to use as an excuse. And that, that could be challenging. What have you seen work well for teams or for different developers that you've been a part of uh, where they've been able to successfully sell stakeholders on making some larger commitments to improve the situation that where they're saying they're having to deal with a lot of that friction? Yeah, so I'm watching that success story right now because at my new job, they have a version of the app that is still running in production, and that's considered legacy. And they have a newer app that was started up a couple years ago, and they're currently moving customers from one application to the other. Very much similar to what Basecamp does, where they, every couple years, restart Basecamp over, version it again, and then they have customers on each, and they slowly migrate those customers up the chain. And it's interesting because you basically have an application that you can say is technical debt and eventually will be gone. And so watching how that's going and unfortunately not being part of the conversation where it was decided to restart the app, but it's very different than what I'm used to because at my last job, the main Ruby on Rails application was started 
at least 10 years ago and has just been slowly migrated and upgraded along the way and never really restarted. And so you end up with a lot of technical debt. There's just parts of the application that you really just don't want to go into. And so the idea of working in an application now where it really did get to be the brand shiny new, let's take the lessons that we learned from this legacy application is really quite fascinating. That's interesting. I don't hear a lot of uh, good success stories when it comes to, say, rewrites. Um, so it sounds like they've been able to find a way to, in a healthy way, migrate their their clients. But they're, I'm assuming, are, are people still making any changes to the older application that's running in production or just kind of maintaining two at the same time? It's just maintaining two at the same time. The only changes that happen in the legacy application is upgrading the script that moves the customers from one to the other. So really, they've hit feature parity between the two. So the the newer app has the features that the old one had, if not more features. So it you, you have to encourage your customers to be able to move over. Really, what ended up happening is that the newer app just took a more functional approach to everything because we're dealing with text messages. That is something that can quickly acquire so much data. And so performance means everything. And so taking the legacy application, learning the lessons from that, and then moving users over is just a really interesting stance. And it seems to be paying off. What is one strong opinion that you've held with regard to software development that you've since changed your mind about? So we've touched upon how important junior developers are to the ecosystem. And just overall in software development, junior developers are so incredibly important. Every company, especially with COVID and everyone moving online, companies are no longer technology companies. Everybody has technology. And so we need more and more people to learn how to code. And we need to be inviting of those people. There's, quote unquote, not enough senior developers out there. Well, you don't get more senior developers unless you train in junior developers and level them up. And so overall, as an ecosystem, we need to be more inviting to junior developers. We need to get better at mentoring them. We need to pay them well. We need to provide them great benefits. And we really need to encourage developers from all walks of life. When I was a boot camp instructor, I absolutely loved the variety of students that were coming in. I had a firefighter, a goat farmer a barista, just such a wide variety of junior developers that all have special skills. And so, you know, empowering them to become developers and then making sure that you're bringing them into your organization and leveling them up because those tend to be the developers that are going to be the most loyal. So I definitely am very passionate about junior developers. And if anyone is interested in getting started in web development, I am always happy to discuss it with anyone. But the other thing that I'm also really passionate about is whose responsibility it is to test third-party APIs. At my last job, I was working with a CRM that was SOAP-based, and they promised for years that they were going to bring out a REST client. I was told for years and to brace myself. Well, that REST client came out, and it was atrocious. It didn't have parity. It had all kinds of flaws in it. It was clearly not tested, but it came with a warning that if I didn't switch over our code from the SOAP API to the REST client, that the SOAP API would just be uninstalled. And so everybody would be, you know, lost at sea on this REST client. And so it became our responsibility as a team, a very small team, 
to be testing this third-party API that wasn't ours. It wasn't under our domain. We were the ones who were logging the bugs against it because if we didn't, then we were going to be stuck with this API. And it really made me wonder because you see so many tutorials and information out there about how you shouldn't be testing third-party APIs when you test your own code, that it's their responsibility to be testing their software. But what do you do when your third-party vendor really is just not responsible? That's a challenging one. I think, you know, I'm, I'm having some little flashes of nightmares from various projects where that's definitely been an issue where the APIs, something went weird. And we're, it took us way longer to figure it out because, and we have to report the bug to the client or to the, the you know, the API organization, whoever the company is that's managing that. That's a, that's a, that's very much a challenging one. What sort of a approaches have you taken to, um, are you writing some sort of like integration type test with those or what's, what's worked well for you and your teams? Yeah, good question. So yes, we were writing integration tests that were actually making real API tests. And so we've used libraries before where you record the request back and you hold on to it and you run your test suite against that so you don't actually hit the third-party API. But when the third-party API changes constantly, you really can't hold on to that. And so regularly, we would dump out those recordings and then have to test against the third-party API only to discover that they had changed something and that something in production was going to break. So just having that awareness of the release notes that are coming out, knowing when they're versioning because we were so, so very coupled to them. But then what also helps too is, you know, don't forget as a developer that you need to have people skills to be able to reach out to the right person in that organization and really run it up the flagpole. So you might be talking to support and they don't understand your issue with a broken API. It might not be their forte. If you continue to have a ton of issues with an API, you know, reach out to the CTO, reach out to the head of support, be clear about the fact that you have a standard for your code. And by being a paying customer, they should also have a standard for their code. You know, I'm thinking about there's those scenarios where you're integrating with, say, a third party, you know, API that's hopefully it's been around for a little bit. And so your organization somehow, like our clients will make a decision to work with some we want to use this application and it has this API to integrate with. And so they kind of decide that and they're like, they said they have an API and they went to the sales process and it all sounded great. And then as a developer, we're like, where's the documentation for their API? And they're like, oh, they'll send that to us later. Like, okay. You know, just, there's a lot of those like challenging things where you get, maybe get a PDF of how it looked like three years ago. And you're like, this doesn't seem to be matching up. And then you're spending a lot of time dealing with the, you know, going back and forth and be like, this doesn't seem to match. This is actually going to be a big problem. Those can be challenging projects. And you mentioned, like, you know, you'll take a snapshot in, you know, this podcast, we don't focus specifically with Ruby on Rails, but for the context of at least our conversation, I know you're, I'm assuming something like a VCR type approach in there, and then do some sort of comparison on that. And do you run that in like a CI on a regular basis to detect if something changed the API quickly? Robbie, it's like you're reading my code base. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that's exactly what we were doing. We were using VCR cassette tapes. And while it's usually best practice to mop out those kinds of requests and not to be recording a full VCR cassette tape, when you know that your, your third-party connection is going to be flapping like that, 
then you really do have to record it down and you do have to do comparisons. So yes, part of the CI was checking whether or not the VCR cassette result was staying the same. Even for the, the most silly of things, just getting a new session, has that changed at all? Is my keys invalidated randomly? Just the smallest of use cases, just to make sure that they stayed on parity. Those are the sort of things that fall over at the weirdest time and then you're like, it takes you a while to figure it out. So those are those are definitely challenging. You know, have you had much experience with building an application against an API that's in development? Yes. Uh, Well, I technically consider that REST API practically in development, but I have done that before where, you know, you're basically waiting on beta versions of that API and, you know, you have to kind of commit as a development team. You can't fall in love with your code because you've given permission to that, that vendor that they are allowed to break you. And so if you want to be innovative and you want to be ahead of the curve of maybe your competitors, then that's something that that's a risk that you have to decide as a development team that you're willing to do. In terms of doing things like that for fun experiments, yeah, I mean, it, it's super fun to be building against something that might be in beta or development. But if you've got a really uh, high value feature, depending upon it, that's definitely taking a big risk. Yeah. I'm also thinking about the scenario where if you have teams, even within the same organization working together, like, okay, this team's building an API and this other team is building maybe a front interface to that that's going to interact with that API trying to build in parallel because they're like, oh, well, you can do that in parallel. We'll just use some dummy data on our end. We'll agree on what the API is going to look like. But that can also be just as challenging and have a lot of the same sorts of problems that you would if you're using a third-party API as well. I've heard those same stories just, you know, and witnessed that even with the people that were just down the hallway. Like, what changed? You know, it was working yesterday and it took, you know, I just spent a couple hours trying to, realizing that the API changed, but nobody was told. Yeah, so I've had that situation play out at work. So for me, if you're going to have a front end and a back end team working in tandem on the same feature, you want to decide which team has the most open questions and where the most changes could happen. So if you decide that everything's set, you agree on the API, then both teams can work in tandem. But if, for instance, the back end architecture is going to be really complicated, you're making a lot of schema changes, you might want your back end team to go first. And then almost put a flag in the ground once the back-end team has committed to what that API is going to look like, and then the front-end can go. So in that case, I like to have a streamline of features to be able to work on at any given time. So then maybe the front-end and the back-end flip at that point. Usually the sign of a good development team is that you never have enough, you never run out of work. And so in that case, I think if you can avoid working in tandem where there could be a lot of change, that is ideal. Do you have any recommendations for in those scenarios and how to effectively document your API in a, in, a, in a healthy way between both those two teams? Yeah, that's a good question. And something that I have learned at TextUs is the way they have it set up is that the feature tests generate the API. And so when a passing feature test is pushed into production, that sets off a process that updates the API. And so our customers are seeing the same API documentation that the front end is seeing. And I really love that process because... As a back-end developer, maybe my forte isn't sitting there and just writing extensive API documentation, but I'm more familiar with writing tests. And so if that test is passing and it's updating the API documentation, even better. And, you know, for me, I, I love, you know, two birds with one stone. That's great. 
So one of the topics that we cover a lot on this podcast is about the challenges that developers face when they're joining an existing team with existing code bases, which I'm sure you have experience with and are actually going through right now. But knowing that you just recently left a role at somewhere where you'd been for, I think you mentioned maybe over five years, I'd love to dig into that a little bit, like what it's like to leave a project and kind of passing on the baton to the other developers that are there or potentially developers you don't even get to know that are going to join that organization at some point in the not too distant future. So when you're kind of navigating that, what were some of the kind of uh, things that you were thinking about to try to be mindful of? Yeah. So like you mentioned, I'd been at the trust for five years. And so I was a little rusty about leaving a job. But ironically, I gave a conference talk at RubyConf this past year about how to quit your job, which my bosses at the time were not thrilled about. And really, at that point, I wasn't looking for a new job. I just thought it was a fascinating topic because to your point, a lot of people like to talk about the ways that you should join a new job, but there's not a lot of documentation out there about how you should quit your job. So from a developer standpoint, what I did is I sat down and I documented absolutely everything that I knew how to do that nobody else knew how to do. And so what I did is I went through all my DMs and Slack. I looked at all the help tickets that had been filed against me. You know, those one-off tasks like, hey, can you log into the server and reboot this process? Or can you update that one database column in the da- in the database that isn't accessible from the CRM? I documented all those down and I kind of put my heads down and solved as many of those as I possibly could. And if it wasn't something that I could automate as like an actual feature in the system, I made sure that my colleague who's still there knew what I was talking about and it was well documented and then she knew how to do it. So that way, when I got those DMs over the last three weeks that I was there, I would say, hey ping my other colleague, or rather send an official help ticket because no one should be pinging you in Slack. But <laughs> but I want, let, let me shadow, let, you know, I wanted her to be the one to drive and I wanted a shadow to make sure that it was done properly and that she had confidence in being able to do it further. That's great. And so was this a lot of written documentation or did you use other types of media forms as well? Yeah, so I would say, Most of it was written. We do have a comprehensive wiki. Opening up tickets, so any squeaky wheels that I had been, you know, those things that are in the back of your head, like, oh, Ruby, you know, 2.7 came out a while ago and we haven't upgraded. I just really haven't gotten around to it. So while I knew that it wasn't feasible probably to do it while I was there in those three weeks, it's just opening up that ticket so that way it's there. It also provides a nice set of work because their intention is to fulfill the role. They want to bring in a new developer. And how nice is it to almost have these open tickets from the last developer that are small contributions that can be made to the code base right away. And another thing that I think is important is that when you leave a job, you don't burn bridges. You don't just leave with no communication. Now, at this point, I'm working full-time at TextUs, but if the trust has a question or needs something, I'm still available, available to answer that. Now, when they bring on that new developer, I'll probably pair with that developer for a couple hours just to make sure that they feel confident in the code base because it's important to me that I leave my last job in a good place. We'll be back with our interview with Brittany in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you. Thank you for carving out some time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing of a review. Also, 
Does your organization use Ruby on Rails? Are you running on a far older version of Rails and are struggling to find the time and or will to navigate an overdue upgrade? My team at Planet Argon specializes in helping make Ruby on Rails applications better and more, as you might have guessed, maintainable. Get in touch with us at planetargon.com to learn more. And now, back to our interview with Brittany Martin. Documentation is this weird thing where there's kind of like a shelf life for it, where how recently was it worked on? How was it maintained, you know, in some ways? And then I'm hoping that, the you know, the future people will actually read it and go through that process of like trying to comprehend things. And hopefully that's a really good asset. And, you know, mentioned I also like that idea of how you would do some pairing or shadowing with your other, with the other engineer on your team. And so as they were trying to solve things, you could help kind of guide them if they needed some assistance along the way so that they build up that skill set. I'm always curious about like like training exercises about things like that. Like if, if something I've been ruminating on more is about having days where we ask people like, hey, this is the last day you're going to work here. What do you need to do to make sure that like this thing that you're working on doesn't like just fall apart when you're done, when, you, when you're no longer here for some reason? And like, what would you do? Like if you had to write a letter to the, the next developer with like, here's three or four things that you really should probably know. I'm sorry I didn't get to like address these things just to get you outside of like what you're currently working on on your backlog and stuff like that to think about those kind of bigger picture things that you're like, oh, I haven't really thought about that in a while. But yeah, that would be really hard for someone else to kind of come in and take over. Yeah, that's such a good question because for me, the rest transition wasn't completed. There were still too many bugs and unknowns. So the next developer that's going to come in is going to be about 75% of the way on that SOAP to REST conversion. And so for me, it was making sure that the conversions that I had done already made a lot of sense and that the ones that I left open were small enough that they could understand what I was trying to do. But also, um, even if I were to write that letter to the next developer, it might not even be as related as to code as you might think. It might be like, this is how you can get things done at this organization. This is communication style. This is how we do commits. This is, you know, don't talk to my boss uh, first thing in the morning if he hasn't had coffee kind of things, you know, the things that you take for granted that you know. And also it's giving permission to that next developer to say, hey, if you look at the code that I wrote and you're not happy with it, that's okay you can rewrite it. Don't prioritize that because if it's currently working, that shouldn't be your number one priority. But hey, if you want to blame me a little bit on some stuff, I'm comfortable with that. Because no matter what happens when you leave an engineering organization, we mentioned this towards the beginning of the podcast, a little bit of blame might come out. And for me, you know, I I always like to think that my code is perfect and pristine and that I found every edge case. But I want that developer to have permission to really make the code base their own because it is an opinion in a lot of cases. If you charge a credit card, there's no opinion as to whether or not you charge the correct amount. It's whether or not how you handle that success and failure state. In some ways, that's an opinion. Did you have a, a large large team or is it you and just a few developers or, or is it just that one engineer on that specific team? Yeah, it was literally two developers. So there was one developer in charge of the back end, me, and then my partner who was in charge of the front end. My boss was in charge of product management and QA. So it was a very small team. A, I'm jealous of people who can leave a large team 
you know, file their two weeks and then just disappear because those tickets just get reassigned. That was 100% not my, my scenario. And is this new environment you're working in have a much larger team for you to get to work, work within? So I feel that it's a larger team. Every once in a while, someone will mention like, hey, this is a small team, but it's a team of nine developers. So Robbie, that feels absolutely massive <laughs> to me. I, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's always interesting when you know people, I, I'm not going to make any assumptions about how large people's teams are that are listening, but I would imagine, you know, I know you've only been there for a short period of time, but that it is an acclimation thing. You'd be like, oh, how do I fit into this this space now where maybe prior you would probably handle a lot of different types of things and where now you might have people that are maybe more specialized in certain areas of say the the architecture the applications or code bases and and be able to lean on different people for different things and also to have a little bit more of that um, that overlap of like you know there's someone else that can kind of step in when you're on vacation you know and, and not worry about like oh no i hope i good luck you know if you have that one person that you're working with good luck for the next two weeks or whatever so was that part of the reason for moving into a larger organization for you? And how is that, how are you acclimating so far? Yeah. So for me, there was two reasons that I felt that it was time to move on. First of all, I loved my partner at the trust, but there was only two of us. And so, you know, she was very focused on JavaScript and CSS and just didn't really have the current capabilities of reading my Ruby and knowing whether or not it, it was good. And so I really wanted to move into an organization that believed that had a lot of Ruby expertise because I know as a developer, I can be better. I just needed the guidance to do it. And I've already seen my code improve since I've gone to text us because they believe in such extensive pull request reviews. And so I've really enjoyed it. It's been slightly painful, but I knew that was going to happen because, you know, for five years, it was up to me to figure out how the back end was going to work. And I like to believe that I made good decisions there, but, you know, I didn't have anybody reviewing my code. And so that was part one. And then part two is that I have a product management background and I have a managerial background. And so a, a component of working at Textus is, you know, managing developers, making sure that they're focused and that they're supported and really getting a hand in making sure that the features that they're working on are super fleshed out before it gets to them. And so the product manager does an excellent job of doing that. But then there's just there's some engineering technicalities that need to be considered before it's given to a developer. And so getting to kind of split my role between coding and managing and getting to do some product was just a really exciting opportunity. <laughs> That's great. I'm looking forward to hearing more about that and your journey there. I'll have to reconnect with you on that after you've been there for a while longer. You know, I want to also take a quick moment to talk a little bit about your podcast that you're hosting, the 5 by 5 Ruby on Rails podcast. And I know that podcast has been around for quite a while now in the community, in the Rails community. Firstly, before I get into that podcast, but was being a podcast host on your career to-do list? It was absolutely not. It kind of fell into my lap. I tend to be really ambitious in the mornings. I don't know if you have a certain time of the day where you're the most ambitious. For me, it's in the mornings. This is why I work out before I start work. I remember just one morning I had been listening to the podcast and the the host at the time mentioned that they were looking for co-hosts to come on to, you know, provide fodder and provide, you know, stories. And I thought, well, I, I can do that because it seemed like a really low commitment way to get onto a podcast. I wanted to be on a podcast, but I, I never considered hosting one. 
So down the line, um, he eventually got tied up in a big project. And so the podcast kind of went silent for a couple months. And so I reached out because I really did love that podcast. When I was a junior developer, I would walk through the streets of San Francisco listening to it. And it just provided like a lot of... um, a lot of support because I believe that if you listen to things that you don't understand, eventually things will start to stick. And that's really what was effective for me as a junior. So I reached out and asked if I could take over the show and he handed me the keys. So about a hundred episodes later, I, yeah, I continue to be the host of the podcast. That's great. What types of topics are you primarily focusing on with, with the guests on that particular podcast? Yeah, so it's a wide variety. At the time, it was the only Ruby on Rails podcast that was out there. And so I like to cover different upgrades. If I heard banter in the community about certain things, so a good example is um, when the dash dash minimal flag came out, then I wanted to bring on the developer who contributed to that. A big goal for me is finding developers who have never been on a podcast, though. So there are definitely some amazing people in the Ruby on Rails community that have been on a podcast, and they're great guests, and at times I've had them on. But for me, it's really finding people that are contributing to the community who their voices haven't been heard yet. That's great. It's you know, I haven't hit the 100-episode mark yet. I think this recording is actually going to be episode 70, so I'm a little bit behind there. But on in terms of, yeah, that whole challenge of like finding good guests is like, a, I think for me is probably one of the more difficult parts of say running a podcast, finding an eclectic group of people from different diverse backgrounds, from different environments. It's, it's a, I think that's, it's been very, it's been good for me to kind of like figure out how to navigate that. I'm curious, you know, as a podcast host, what are you getting out of it now as a, on a day-to-day level, you had spoken earlier about as a, when you were a junior developer and you would listen and you would, walking through the streets of San Francisco. Now, as you reflect, you know, 100 plus episodes in, how is, how is it, how has it helped you in your career? I'm going to give you a threefold answer to that. So when I applied to Texas, a big requirement for Texas was that you needed to be passionate about Ruby on Rails. There is no one more passionate than someone who spends their personal time running a podcast about Ruby on Rails. And they really got that. And that was a big part of the reason that I really wanted to go there because they saw that. But also the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust really supported me in running the podcast as well. It was a way for me to give back to the community. And, you know, I really enjoyed doing it. It's a lot of work. And you probably know this as well, Robbie, that, you know, it's not just clicking a button and then just publishing. There's editing, there's sponsors, there's compiling show notes. It's, it's a lot of work. But it all pays off when I go to a conference in person and someone will just perk up and be like, I know that voice. And they come over and talk to me like we're friends. And it's it's just a fantastic feeling. And so that's part of the reason that I do it. But then lastly, the one that I brought up before is really elevating those voices that we haven't heard in our community. And that is worth it to me. That's great. You know, for those listening who are maybe have contemplated the idea of starting a podcast and maybe they're thinking, oh, there's too many podcasts already. What could I possibly contribute that hasn't already been said? What advice could you offer them? Find a niche and something that you're passionate about, because trust me, I'm subscribed to at least 20 podcasts a week, but I make time for them. When someone is excited and has a well-defined structure to their podcast. You have to be consistent. I've seen way too many podcasts fail because they put out two or three episodes 
only get a few listeners and then decide that it's not worth it. You want to bring on guests that you feel comfortable with, almost as a buffer at the very beginning. For me, when I started hosting the 5x5 Ruby on Rails podcast, I brought on guests that were friends of mine, and then I was able to move out of the circle. Trust me, there is no greater way to get to meet your heroes in the community than to offer to bring them onto a podcast because you're offering them something so they can share their knowledge out to the community. It is amazing the people that have agreed to be on the show, people that I would never have approached, you know, at a conference after a talk. So it really does provide a great gateway to be able to share their messages. That's so true. I, I remember thinking early on when I was starting my podcast that there were some people I was like, oh, I would love to interview that person and get a chance to do that, but I don't feel like I'm ready and I'm going to have to make myself wait a while. And so there was, a, and then there was a few people I reached out early on. I'm like, hey, does this even sound like a thing you'd be interested in at some point? But I'm not, I don't want to book you for at least like 30, 40 plus episodes once I figure out how the hell to do this. And so that was a I think it was a good thing for me to do that. And then I think I probably avoided getting turned down from people uh, early on if, you know, it's a brand new podcast necessarily. So I think and I like that advice in terms of like finding people that you're comfortable with. I didn't actually do that. I, I did find some people that I had never spoken with before and that was challenging, but I think it, it got me, I mean, I did get through it, but, um, and then found a structure through that process, but it was it definitely wasn't uh it was difficult in certain ways that I didn't expect, but it was also a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. I had also tried doing a podcast where it was just like a group of people sat, sitting around a table many years ago, and we got like six episodes into it, and we're like, what the hell are we doing with this? And then nothing ever happened again. The feedback we got was like, oh, that was slightly interesting, but the audio quality sucked. So we're like, oh, maybe we just can't do this until we have better equipment. Whereas I kind of sat on the, the maintainable podcast I did for probably almost a year before I was like, okay, I'm going to do it, and this is how I'm going to do it. And here's the process I'm going to put in place to make it work because I knew that I couldn't do everything on my own necessarily either to keep pushing that stuff out. So I commend you. So I know that you, from my understanding, you do quite a bit of like the editing and everything as well. Yeah. So I'm completely responsible for everything. It hasn't really even occurred to me to maybe uh, outsource that to somebody else. But I do want to compliment you, Robbie. This podcast is excellent. So listeners, if you're listening, which you you have to be, if you're listening to what I'm saying, you have picked a really great podcast to listen to. I will say as well that be willing to iterate just like your code on the podcast format. When I came into it, I had no format for it. And along the lines, I have added set questions that I know listeners like to hear. I also sometimes change up the format. I typically do an interview type format like we're doing right now, but I also have a co-host that I bring on pretty regularly and we just banter. And, you know, I like to read the analytics because, you know, I'm a data person and I like to see what scores well. But, you know, sometimes I will bring on a diverse voice that might not necessarily score well, and I don't care because that that was someone that I really was excited to talk about. That's great. Have you noticed an impact at all um, with, because you were talking about analytics, with um, the overlap with, with COVID? Yes, for sure. I think the most fascinating thing is that the downloads are now um, stretched out a lot more. Because I think a lot of people were downloading the episodes right away and then getting in the car and listening to the podcasts. You now see the downloads throughout the day now since everybody's staying at home. But overall, listenership has been pretty stable. But that is a good question. Have you seen any changes? I, I haven't looked like too closely at it in my kind of 
anecdotally speaking, I think it was just if I think listenership is down a bit, but I think, and so I've often, often wondered, I'm like, is that just an element of like, people have got other things to worry about. They don't have, you know, 45 minutes on a commute that they are over a couple of commutes that they spread out the conversation to. I don't know if it's just like, like, I don't, I don't think I'm personally listening to podcasts as often as I was pre COVID, but so I'm like, well, I'm, trying to just like throw myself into that as well. But it's a, it's been an interesting thing to try to find that, like, how do you, how is that impacting? And so it's in some ways I'm like, oh, I'm not going to use it as a discouragement thing. I I still need to keep pushing through. And then another aspect of, at least with this podcast that I, when I, when I was thinking about it was how do I have conversations with people that I feel like the conversations could be valuable whenever they're heard, not just necessarily at that specific point in time. Cause I don't usually talk about like, what's the brand new version of something or this new technology. It's usually taking care of existing applications and it's technology agnostic to some degree. So I think it's been interesting to try to figure out how do I take advantage of that I have all this kind of this big chest of different conversations with people that can be repurposed and reused or reshared later on and stuff like that, and that rather than just being at the point in time that it was published. I will tell you at the very beginning of the pandemic, I had the worst time booking guests because everything was un- so unknown. I had potential guests that were trapped in different places that they didn't expect to be. And so I had a lot of cancellations. And so I flailed a little bit because I was worried about having enough content for the podcast. Now that we've kind of settled into the pandemic, which seems weird, but it's kind of true, I have had a much easier time getting guests because people are now working from home. They've invested in better audio equipment. They have a better idea of what their days are going to look like. I feel that people are contributing more to open source because they have more time. And so overall, then, you know, booking guests has been far easier during the pandemic. That's true. I don't have like a good space in my at my home, so I'm actually like in the house hunting business process right now. So we can have a slightly bigger place because I'm literally working at my dining table every day. Um, I'm recording this at the office that's technically closed to all the employees, except for you know a few people that need to come in for a few little things. So I'm, but I've had to cancel appointments or recordings with people be cut with interviews because the building is doing like an AC maintenance on a building that's not really being occupied at the moment. And so I'm, that was like literally something that happened this week where I had to cancel two episodes or I rescheduled two episode recordings yesterday because of silly things like that too. So, but I hear, I hear you on how that was like a challenging thing when things were going, when things were starting. And I was like, All right, I think I just need to like hit pause for a bit. Cause I don't, people are going to need to cancel and I don't even know where I'm going to be working every day and how, you know, if, is my business going to survive this, let alone the podcast. So we're pushing through, I suppose. So a couple of last questions for you. So what non-software development related book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in our industry? So for me, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg is just an incredible book. And if you haven't read it, it is this analysis of how you can make these small changes to your habits. And I just remember I've probably read it three or four times and it has made such an impact on, you know, how I set up my day and, you know, how to experiment with rewards and how to identify routines that really make me feel like I work well. And so I highly recommend that book. That's great. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online? Yeah, so you can find me at brittanymartin.dev. I recommend checking out the 5 by 5 Ruby on Rails podcast. And my site that I mentioned has links to all of my social media. Excellent. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Brittany. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you, Robbie. 